0: third grade as old as I am I still remember third grade I could never get that fancy writing was it cursive is that that's the grade you have to do that I, I never could get it I just got the old box letters down real good pray with me spirit of living God falls fresh now on this preacher And these, your children, redeemed by the blood of our brother Jesus. Amen. Athos, Porthos, Aramis were the closest of friends. They were inseparable. They swore to each other a brotherhood that would never be broken by anything until they died. Together through their battles with the affairs of the state and the courts, they discovered that they could conquer any enemy and achieve all things if they but stay together. They became known as the Three Musketeers, and their motto was All for One and One for All. Most of us think that these are three mystical characters. But in fact, they are real historical figures. But there was also another musketeer. Actually, there were four musketeers. D'Artagnan was the fourth. And the tale goes like this. Based on these four characters, these people were elite black musketeers in, in a regiment of the France Army. And in 1640 they came to Paris and witnessed some of the most dramatic and the most auspicious things ever to happen in the 17th century. The struggle for control during the last years of Louis XIII and the rise of power to Cardinal Mazarin, but that's French history. There's something more, more meaningful about this all for one and one for all that we can draw from their stories. There's one consistent truth to all of this that that we can learn from these stories and that there is power in unity. All for one, one for all. And I know, I know I hear you saying there's ambiguity in the idea of being one. How can individuals with all our differences, all our differences like race and height and weight, mental and physical capacity become one? It is a concept that every page of Scripture delves into very deeply. Because, brothers and sisters, the foundation of our faith is based on unity Jesus led a revolution of the heart and mind his was thought to be he was thought to be the long-awaited divinic like warrior that would ride into the city of Jerusalem and lead an army to take back Jerusalem for the chosen ones and they were ready to storm the palace and redeem the holy city by any means necessary But Jesus' revolution was not against the state. Jesus' revolution was not against Rome or the Roman governor. He came to lead God followers to unity. It was for unity among the people that God sent Jesus. You remember Jesus told the disciples, we must go through Samaria Now, friends, there was no physical reason that they had to travel through Samaria. They must have looked at him and said, I don't think you understand. We have the map right here. We don't have to go up that mountain. We're already, all we have to do is just go around this path. No geographical reason that they traveled through Samaria. In Samaria, Jesus knew that there were long awaited members of the faith that had been divided for years. The Samaritans were the racial half-breeds in biblical times. They were the product of the mixed marriages between Jews and Babylonians. Whenever a Babylonian married a Jewish woman and they had children, they called those children Samaritans. The lady at the well expressed the need that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You remember she said to to the master, Jews and Samaritans have no dealings. We worship on this mountain at this well that our ancestor gave to us. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. The people of God were divided, but Jesus came to heal the divide. Further, the chosen people and the Gentiles, whose name translates literally dogs, had no dealings. Jesus' mission was to heal the relationship between people and heal the relationship between people and God. The disunity among the people eventually led to the disunity of the people of God and God. Brothers and sisters, disunity in Christ's church will lead to us not being the mission-minded people that God wants us to be. And God knows that there are plenty of reasons for us to be divided in today's church. Everything from wearing a mask, not wearing masks, to what scripture version you like best, to what we ought to wear in church. There are plenty of reasons to be divided. But the scriptures and God wants us to know if we're going to redeem the world, we're gonna to have to be a unified body. It is in our unity that we bring people to know that God is an awesome God because the world knows that if we are a unified group of people from all different backgrounds, from all different places, then there must be something powerful in what we worship. Yet my friends, the enemy has managed to make Sunday morning the most segregated morning in America. Sunday morning (laughs) is one of the only places where we don't interact with people who are different than we are. Sunday morning has become a time when we worship over here and they worship over there. Paul summarizes his his gospel of salvation through grace, through faith alone, and describes the nature and the role of the church in God's eternal plan. The revolutionary Jesus came to revolutionize relationships. I know at every turn we want to see Jesus as one who came to be this nice, nice person, but Jesus was willing to go through any length, to bring people together. If you carefully read the Gospel of Mark, every time Jesus performs a miracle on one side of the lake, he crosses over to the other side of the lake because he's trying to let us know on this side of the lake, there's Gentiles. On this side of the lake, there are Jews and the two must become one because God is trying to create one people, not two people. My brothers and sisters the book of ephesians is a radical little book that reminds us of the radicalness of jesus's revolution jesus the one who came down through the lineage of david jesus the one who was raised on the wrong side of the tracks Jesus, who came to bring unity with God and others for the transformation of the world. Friends, it's through unity that people will see the Christ in us. Only Christ can promote unity. Democracy, I believe, is the best form of government, but it's the hardest because we allow the people to choose their leadership. Paul writes, for Jesus is our source of unity. In his flesh, he was made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke the dividing wall. That is the hostility between people that separated them. He has abolished the law, the law that had no power to forgive, the law that said that if you do this or do that, you are right with God. The law that God had given the people to live the way God wanted them to had become a dividing element in the world. And so Jesus came to abolish the law, to create one new humanity in place of the two making peace with the people that we can reconcile our differences in God. We could lay down the things that divide us because in Christ, we are one. Certainly, Jesus recognized the difference between all people. You remember on the day of Pentecost, there was 21 different languages represented in that crowd that day. God recognizes the difference between human beings. But God also says to us, in Christ, we can have unity. Those of you who are married or in a relationship will understand that. I don't know of any two human beings. And when we marry folks, we, we use that text. And the two shall become one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Until the checkbook comes out and we have to decide who's going to manage the bills. <laughs> and what are we going to spend our money on? You're just not knowing that, aren't you, Angie? Angie just got married. And we decide. That love, love, will help us conquer any division that we have. Love will help us see that there's nothing more important than what God has brought together. Love will help us to understand that we can cover whatever it is that threatens to destroy us. We are kingdom citizens, soldiers of the cross, Christians. Paul says that we are still so divided and so social with social ideologies. But he says to us, we can become one. And here's why. Until all of us come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature to the measure of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their own craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth, In love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ for whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up. Did you hear it? Did you catch it? Did you catch it? what God is trying to do in and through us, there is really a revolutionary statement that Paul just made. Did you catch it? The full impact of what the apostle just said. The great apostle is telling us what the end goal of God is for the church. What does God want from us? What is God after? Note, Paul does not say a thing about evangelism. He never mentions the evangelization of the world. The goal of Jesus' revolution is not to evangelize the world. Oh, I know, I've read the Great Commission over and over and over. I believe in it fully. I believe that Jesus sends us into the world to preach the gospel to every person. And this is often held up as the supreme end goal and the function of the church is to evangelize the world. Hear me, my friends, evangelism is very important. The church has an obligation to evangelize the world. But it is not the supreme mission of individuals who are Christians. It is not the final goal that God has for us as individuals. The great apostle says nothing about the establishment of the millennial or evangelizing the world and God's going to come back and claim the world. I believe in all of that. I believe in the great vision of the prophets that there is come there's coming a day when peace shall roll down like a mighty stream and people shall melt their spears into ploughshares and make their swords into pruning hooks and never learn war any more, friends? I believe that there's a day coming when righteousness shall prevail across the face of the earth, and all of the stories of injustice and heartache and tragedy that we are exposed to now will be forever eradicated. I believe that God will make all of that possible. But that's not the revolutionary statement that Paul has. In mind for the great reason for the church to exist. He says nothing about bringing world peace or justice. All of these will be accomplished, but they are not the essential thing that God is after from us. The supreme thing, the paramount thing that God is after above everything else, hear it, is the mature. Human being. Paul says what God wants most from me and you is for us to grow up and get rid of the childish things that divide us, to grow up in Christ, to become more and more like Jesus. It's you and I fulfilling our humanity, being what God had in mind when God created man and woman in the first place. It was not that we should be white robe saints of God that want to produce and accomplish church folk or religious ideologies. I don't believe that is what God is after. I believe that God wants us to mature to be mature in the faith, to be responsible, well-adjusted, wholehearted human beings as God intended men and women to be. It takes the church to accomplish that. We cannot do it apart from the working of the church as God intended the church to do God's work. My friend, God's goal for you and I is that we become more and more like Jesus. Jesus is the supreme example of how we relate to people and how we relate to God. But here, the apostle tells us the secret of having peace in our lives, the secret of oneness is a person. Christ is our peace. In Christ, there is no condemnation of any human being. In Christ, we are brothers and sisters. And when Christ makes peace between individuals or between nations, that peace will be a satisfying, permanent, and genuine peace. It will be a real peace that lasts forever. And it will be a totally satisfying experience when we come to grow up in Christ. And that relationship that we have with God is the same as the relationship that Jesus had with his father. What Paul is saying is that in order to live in peace, you and I must have peace on the inside. If you don't have Christ on the inside, you can't have peace on the outside. The problem with most of us is that we want to start By clearing up only the results of conflict. We want to settle the conflict no matter what. And some of us even want to avoid conflict. But God never starts at that point. God starts with the individual. God says, peace is in my son. And in order for you to live at peace with someone else, you must have peace with Jesus Christ. If you have his peace, then you can stop solving the conflicts of the world because you have solved the conflicts in you. But you can never do it if you don't first solve the relationship between us and Jesus Christ. Having a relationship with Jesus is what we introduce to people we introduce Jesus to people. We introduce Jesus to people because we firmly believe that God in Jesus Christ has the answers to the world's problems. We introduce people to Jesus Christ because we remember when Christ discovered us, I wasn't so holy. I don't know about you, I quit the church. And all of this religious ideology, as soon as I could leave my mother's house, in my mother's house, you either went to church or you didn't stay there. So at 16, I moved out and did whatever I could because I didn't want to be around church folk. Some of the worst treatment of human beings in my life I've seen between church folk. In my little Baptist church in the south end of East St. Louis, I saw all kinds of division in the church. I didn't want any part of that. I saw everything from when a young lady who was not married got pregnant. They would make her sit on the front pew, the front bench that they called the mourner's bench until she felt sorry. But nobody ever brought the man who caused the pregnancy into the church and make them feel lousy. Some of the worst things that I ever seen happen between people happen in the church. I've been to sevens, count them, seven general conferences where people meet from all over the world. I've seen some of the most hateful statements ever made in the name of Jesus. But I came running back to the church because after being out in the world and doing everything that I thought, would bring peace to me. Couldn't do it. Believe me, I tried it all. There's nothing you can do that I have not done. But I came to the reality. I was still miserable. It didn't matter how much money I had. Didn't matter the cars I drove. Didn't matter the house I lived in or the clothes I wear. I had no peace on the inside. Always angry, always not satisfied until Christ came into my life in the very church where I had seen atrocious things happen. When I came back to Christ, I was already in college, already in my third year. But I needed God in my life. And I came and I asked the superintendent of a Methodist church, how can I be a pastor? I feel that calling. And he said to me, right now, we don't have a church for African-Americans to put you in. In our conference, there was only two African-American churches in Southern Illinois conference. He said, when one opens up, I'll let you know. Hurt on top of hurt, on top of hurt. Anger gave way to tears. Tears produced hostility. But it was the church. First Methodist in Lebanon. A place where I was the only African-American in the room. The church loved me into a relationship with God. I didn't know a salad fart from a dinner fart. I didn't know the difference between Mozart or N.C. Hammer. But the people of First Methodist Church saw it as an obligation to love one another. And it's not that they didn't have problems with each other. But the way they loved each other made me want the God that they were serving. And the very church that said it had no place for me made room for me. They didn't need an associate pastor at First Methodist in Lebanon. They created one for me. And for five years, we ministered together and they taught me what it meant to be a Christian a follower of Christ. And when the bishop sent me back to East St. Louis to start a church in one of the most war-torn areas in East St. Louis, Washington Park, the first Methodist church went with me. They had everything to lose, but they came to Washington Park with me. One of their deacons became my choir director. Can you imagine A white man leading a black choir? But Conrad Steinhoff did. And together, the gang members of Washington Park and together, the drug-infested men and women who had abandoned their kids saw in the church who came from Lebanon to Washington Park to be with their son and their brother. They saw what was possible in Jesus Christ. And friends, I stand here to tell you, there is no reason why people should leave Calvary because they think differently than we do. God honors our differences. But God also wants us to know You can produce something powerful, powerful if we but let Christ intervene and let peace rule the day. Let us pray. Spirit of living God, fall so fresh now on this, your servant. I thank you, O God, that you have visibly shown me. What can happen when people love each other, when people love you more than they love themselves, when people are willing to lay down the differences so that they can honor you in the world that you created. I thank you for these men and women who sit in this room. They sit as Christians, followers of your son, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to show the world that we are one in your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're comfortably able, would you please stand and let us sing this final hymn, Love Divine, All Love Exhaling. Please stand.